I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, it's Amy. Before I start the show, I want to tell you about something I'm really excited about. We teamed up with Bauer Studios, who you'll hear from this episode, and West Elm for a Clever Reflection Contest. Grand prize is a custom one-of-a-kind mirror from Bauer Studios, plus a $250 gift card to West Elm. And second prize is another $250 gift card to West Elm. A reflection can be physical, like in a mirror, or abstract, like a thought. So to enter, we're asking you to create a short video that showcases a reflection visually, while you share a personal reflection verbally. Post your video to Instagram with hashtag Clever Reflection Contest and tag at Clever Podcast, at West Elm, and at Bauer Studios. The last day to enter is August 18th. For the full contest details and official rules, visit cleverpodcast.com slash reflection contest. Now on with the show. Something comes in into our work every once in a while is kind of throwing in an element of surprise, like kind of like a little little like hint of, of something that feels a little bit magical or unexpected. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Danny Gianella, Tamar Hijazi, and Jeffrey Renz. Together, the three of them are Bauer, a New York City-based studio with a multidisciplinary approach to contemporary furniture and product design. With a focus on mirrors, they explore perceptions of depth, light, and self. Through a free-thinking, experimental process, Bauer aims to bring unexpected objects and environments into people's lives, with reflections taking center stage. They believe, of all the things we surround ourselves with every day, the mirror is most closely related to our consciousness, a humble technology for understanding ourselves. This defining spirit of discovery is present throughout their collections and is passed on to those who engage with a Bauer design. So let's hear from Danny, Tamara, and Jeffrey. I'm Danny Gianella. I'm the creative director and slash design director of Bauer Studios. Bauer Studios is a contemporary furniture design studio where we design and make a range of products uh, from furniture, lighting, home accessories, uh, but with a focus on mirrors. That's our concentration. I, I think it's just the general idea of 
dreaming up an idea and and trying to make it a reality and having fun along the way and trial and error and getting better and better at it. But yeah, just the general coming up with with a thought and making it a reality. This is Tamar from Bauer Studios. I wear the hat of design slash creative director alongside Danny. Aside from the love of art and design, I definitely have ADD and I have that creative itch to get, you know, make things. So the process of design make, I'm definitely a hands-on person. I am Jeffrey Renz. I am the sales and development director as with Danny and Tamer, you know, we all kind of wear a lot of hats and do a little bit of everything. Uh, more on the business side of things. So for the most part, I guess you could say sales, logistics, strategy, financial stuff, partnerships. I get to play a little bit on the creative side as well with photography, marketing, sourcing, occasionally a design project. I guess what drives me is that at heart, I'm, I'm a bit of a brand builder. I get energized by just being able to like push things forward and make things better and grow the business. I can be stubborn and not very easily content. Uh, so this kind of motivates me just to keep going. I really believe in the work that we do, the products that we make or the services that we provide. Um, it's more than just kind of a company or a product to me. So it just feels natural and automatic to, to fight for the business or for the growth wherever we see an opportunity. Wow. Well, that does sound like a really balanced and dynamic trio. But before we get to the trifecta of awesome that you have become as Bauer Studios, can we go back to pre-Bauer times and learn a little bit about you individually? Like, what what was the sort of path of your life before you got to Bauer? This is Danny. For me, it kind of started uh, in high school. I was fortunate enough to go to this art school every afternoon during high school, like from one to four o'clock, just was exposed to all kinds of visual arts, um, drawing, painting, sculpture, video, photography. It was, just, it was like art school, but at a pretty young age. So it, it was definitely formative for me and kind of a time where I, I identified myself as an artist. In your teens, you're, you're kind of looking for identity. So I, I really hang, hung on to that. And uh, that's kind of who I became. And there was a college visitation trip junior year uh, where we all got on a bus and hopped around different art schools. We stopped by uh, RISD. That was the day I learned about design. And I was super interested in it and, and pretty relieved, to be honest, because um, something I struggled with at the time with art was I always enjoyed learning about the techniques, but never really knew what to draw or paint or sculpt. Like, I didn't really feel like I had anything to say. So it felt like design was very grounding in that way. It was just, it was just a very practical it had very practical parameters. You know, you design a functional object. And then within that, um, I had space to release my creativity. So it just felt really like a good fit for me. And yeah, and then I, I ended up uh, going to RISD and studied industrial design there. I was pretty drawn to, uh, similar to Tamar, I'm, I'm pretty hands-on and drawn to the studios, mostly furniture studios. I spent a lot of time in the wood shop. And the reason I was into those was because I could see an idea through to the end and, and 
have the final object that I could look at and use and critique firsthand. Sit on and live with. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. I went to, I studied furniture design at RISD too. And I also needed the sort of practical parameters in order to give myself permission to express my creativity. But then I, I really appreciated taking something from abstract to tangible, from theoretical and hypothetical to, to real. And the materiality of it and the physics of it and everything is only really understandable when it becomes real. And it was a pretty big contrast to, you know, some of the other classes where you're designing gadgets and you end up with like a computer rendering or a styrofoam model. There's just like a, it's not as intimate uh, of a connection to material and usage. So that's pretty much how I got into furniture was just because I could make it at RISD. So after graduating, I ended up uh, working in the wood shop as a fabricator for Uhuru Design, mm-hmm. um, which is a furniture design build studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And that was fun. It was a bunch of guys, mostly from RISD, actually. It's really where I refined my craft as a woodworker, got more of an, an intimate knowledge of just woodworking and fabricating in general. They had pretty high standards compared to school. <laughs> I was on the hook for, for making things nice. And that's actually where I met Tamar. He joined the production team there about a year after I started. And, and yeah, we, we worked alongside each other. We hung out after work. We, we became friends. And um, Tamar is like a very, a very sociable guy. <laughs> so, yeah, he was really good at meeting people and, and started getting like these side projects outside of work. And needed an extra hand here and there. So he would ask me for help. And so it was kind of how we started working just the two of us outside of our jobs. Yeah. That's kind of how, how our like business partnership originated, I guess, was just from working together and then, and then a little bit outside of uh, working hours. Nice. Tamar, do you want to backtrack to your sort of pre-Bauer story and then confirm or deny what Danny's accused you of? (laughs) For me, I would say I had a mentor Growing up, he was our family friend. He was actually my older brother's best friend. And he had gone to school for fashion design. And I just always admired him, his style, everything. Uh, even in high school, the classes I took were, I took fashion, there was a fashion class mm. in high school. I took that class. Uh, I was like one of two guys in there. There was also a shop class in my high school. I took that. I think that was mandatory. Anyways, <laughs> eventually, you know, he went off to Paris and London and I hadn't heard from him in so long. And my parents split up at a certain point. I end up moving to Gainesville, Florida. I'm in high school there now, finishing up. And I go to school pretty much all of a sudden, Tony, this friend of mine, mentor, reaches out to me saying he has these projects he's working on not related to fashion. And he asked me for help. I was like, of course, yes, I'll be there. And he's, he's in DC and I fly back. And from there, he opened this door to like be this creative person. He pushed me. I haven't really thought about it till today. The questions. <laughs> I don't think Danny even knows this. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and also, where's Tony now? Tony's still in DC, and he basically he's <laughs> left the life of fashion. 
I learned a lot from him and eventually I went back to Gainesville, started doing my own little projects and furniture and I like did some build outs in bars in Gainesville and like looking back, it's very kitschy and small town looking. Yeah, but you got to get that <laughs> stuff out of your system so that you can either you can graduate to a more sophisticated thing. Otherwise, you'd be getting it out of your system now and that would be bad. Right, <laughs> right. That would be bad. But from there, I, I kind of over being in Gainesville and knew I wanted to be in the field of furniture somehow. So I, I saw Yuhuru. I like saw their like website and was just, you know, admired their work at the time, considering I was doing like a lot of reclaimed stuff. So I got to New York and after about three or four months there, I finally got a job with Yuhuru. So, so you guys met at Yuhuru and sort of bonded on the shop floor, but then started doing some side jobs together and really enjoyed your mm-hmm. collaborative dynamic and those side jobs, you decided to sort of formalize that into your own studio. Is that the gist? I mean, even before that, we we would just pretty much take on any little job, just like, even if it was like, I need a new cabinet next to my dishwasher, we'd be like, okay. One day I was on a train and there was some confusion with the train. And I met the owner of this bar's the uh, bar owner's wife on the train and she just told me what she did. And I told her what I did. And then she's like, Oh, my husband's opening a bar and they actually need someone. I was like, Oh, here's my number. That was the start of the biggest project we'd done pre Bauer. Yeah. Um, it was kind of, it was kind of crazy thinking back because we our our bosses at Uhuru were, were nice enough to, let all the employees it was kind of a perk of working there was that you could use the shop after hours for your own personal projects. Uh, it was an unspoken thing, but I guess it was like, you know, within reason mm-hmm. and, you know, it's for like making a, a little bookcase or whatever, like little projects. And yeah, little, little did they know that we were doing this like full on bar build out <laughs> on nights and weekends. And we spent, I think it was like a, almost a full summer working on that off hours. And it was a pretty big project for us. Uh, it was the first time we, we had anything of that, of that scope. Um, and when they opened, um, naturally, you know, people, uh, customers were asking who built it out, who, you know, who were the woodworkers? Cause there were some elements in there that, uh, that kind of stood out some like, live edge slab bar and just some other uh, interesting like reclaimed details. Again, it was sort of this, the vibe of what we worked on at Uhuru, which is why uh, one reason they were interested in having us build it. Um, but yeah, there, from that came a lot of little jobs that were for uh, people like custom furniture build-ins and we were, we were so into that. We're like, oh, this is how you work for yourself. You know, people come to you with something they want and you make it and you try to make it in a way that you like it and you're proud of it. And then you, you know, you just, it snowballs from there. But we very quickly learned that, you know, the challenges of trying to satisfy clients who, who don't exactly know what they want. <laughs> That's the hardest and, part. They don't, and you're like, they only know what they magical, don't want, but they don't right, know that they yeah. don't want it till you've designed it. 
Yeah, and you're young and you're starting out and you want to please them and you want the work. So you're just trying to make it work. And sometimes, you know, 300 emails later, uh, you haven't seen a dollar and you're like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? Like what they actually want is is this thing that we would never want to even like photograph or show anybody. So right, right. <laughs> that was a really, a really good lesson. And in hindsight, I'm, I'm sure there's, well, there are smarter ways of going about that kind of business. Uh, we just didn't know how, mm-hmm. yeah, the takeaway from that experience, uh, was, you know what, if we just design our own furniture, it would just be so clean. Like take it or leave it. Like that's if, imagine if, if that's how the business work, it sounds so obvious, but it, you know, it, that kind of work takes a lot of upfront investment. Like no one's throwing you money to dream up some ideas. And we sort of had to force ourselves into it by applying for a trade show that we got into. And, and then we're like, okay, we have a real deadline. We, we're actually paying to be in this. And so pressure's on. So yeah, that's kind of how we decided to, to design our own stuff. Well, that sounds like a lovely romance really glad I got to participate in this podcast so I could hear this love story. (laughs) (laughs) This is more depth than I've heard in a long time. And then are you, are you brought into the fold, Jeffrey, or do you feel like a third wheel, like as they gaze across the table (laughs) saw? It depends on the day, you know, it depends what movie's on, if it's funny or if it's romantic. (laughs) Let's hear your backstory, Jeffrey. I guess I have to start in Lakeland, Florida. That's where I grew up. Uh, it's a pretty small city, maybe 100,000 people uh, in the middle of the state. It's a great place, but I was ready to go. So I ended up going to the College of Charleston in South Carolina. I was a little bit lost, but I knew that I wanted to do something in business. So I, I studied that there. And uh, I didn't have a, much exposure to the creative world at that time. And it wasn't really on my radar or a priority for me. I kind of thought that, you know, I would dream up some invention or like trade stocks on the beach. And that was like a real uh, possibility for me. Obviously, that's not the case. (laughs) I eventually moved to New York and uh, just kind of bounced around a little bit. I took a bunch of different jobs working in marketing and logistics. And eventually I went furniture shopping with uh, my sister who was shopping for her apartment. I was kind of helping her pick some things and it was like a vintage antique furniture store, pretty small company, and kind of became friends with the staff there. And I think it was two days later, I had an interview, and the next day I started. Um, and that's where I was kind of introduced to the world of furniture and design. And thankfully, I was able to kind of fuse my business education, not so much my background, but education into that. So, you know, working on marketing and sales and getting to do some photography stuff there. That was a pretty big deal for me. I think that shaped me a lot. So I ended up kind of bouncing down the road and doing some more photography jobs and ended up working with a set design studio, which at the time I thought was like, that was it for me. I I totally loved it. It was amazing. But after a while, I kind of realized that it's just so temporary. You know, we build this like impressive, amazing set and it's completely destroyed 24 hours later. Yeah. Um, I've done some work like that too. It's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, it's really fun. And like the whole production aspect of it is so motivating and inspiring. But in the end, it just gets torn down and it's gone. So I kind of 
found myself being more interested in in objects and pieces, sight unseen off site. That's where I found Bauer. Uh, I think it was their first show ever down in Soho. And went with some friends and just was hanging out in the Bauer booth for a while. And uh, nobody was there, by the way. It was completely <laughs> empty. And I was like, these guys need some help, obviously. <laughs> but no, it was amazing. And, I, and I, I loved the work. I thought it was like so fresh and just felt like the potential. You know, I didn't know their story, but it just seemed like there was so much room to grow just by what I was seeing. So I emailed them. I think it took a while. And then we reconnected a while later, had a drink, and I started working with them. And that was, I don't know what year that was, maybe 2015, something like that. Mm. So the first date went well. The first date did go well. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think so. So did you join the team right away and then you create your own role? Pretty much. Yeah, I guess you could say that. It was Danny Tamer, I think one more person and myself right at that time. We had some workshop space, but we were essentially you know, operating the office out of a closet, give or take. <laughs> But yeah, I think the role kind of created itself. I mean, I think I had an idea of what it might become, but it didn't really exist. Like I didn't step into it immediately. But you had a sense of what you could offer. I think so. I mean, they're they're both such creative guys. And for me to come in with like a little bit of a different mindset where I'm like, wait, where's your Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> you know, I think that was kind of helpful. For yeah, that pro- at the same time. Probably. Were you guys grateful that somebody was going to sort of keep things on track? For sure. Yeah, we definitely felt like we weren't ready for a Jeffrey in our in our relationship. <laughs> um, but we knew that we we needed you know a little more balance or maybe a lot of more balance uh, in our in our business to, to have it grow. But yeah, he he just eased into it really naturally, and I think it really helped us grow faster and better. Well, I know I've heard this from a lot of people, and I and I can admit it's the same for me. When the admin and the monetization and the worry about all the marketing and, and business stuff starts to mount, I feel less creative and overwhelmed. So having somebody to sort of wrap their brain around that and be the lead on that would seem to me like it would free uh, you two up to have more fun with the product design. Yeah, it's, it's something we still try to manage to this day as uh, just trying to find ways to keep everybody in their sweet spot so that they can do what they're best at and enjoy the most. And of course, we, as said before, we wear, you know, we share a lot of hats and do a lot of uh, different roles. But yeah, I think that that helps a lot is having more help to keep to keep you in your sweet spot. We're a pretty loose bunch. When Danny and Tamara were like, we want to make this seven foot fountain, you know, you could imagine the expression on my face. <laughs> um, but like, but it was great in the end, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty loose on something. <laughs> I, I want to know the naming story because none of you are named Bauer. So where did that come from? <laughs> the naming started, I obviously pre Bauer. We went months of trying to figure out a good name. The lists went on. We would spend weeks just coming up with silly names just for fun, just to laugh at. And then thought we had something. Definitely one of the most difficult things, probably same as like naming your own child. Maybe not the same as naming your own child. <laughs> <laughs> but Danny one day 
after all this, came in and had just watched Planet Earth or something, and David Attenborough had revealed the Bowerbird to him. I don't know if we still, we used to have a link of this video on our website. I don't know if it's still there on the About page. He puts these treasures on display within and around a construction that has taken him years to build. Yeah, so it's a, it's this bird that creates these elaborate structures and decorates them with colorful displays of found objects around the forest. And, and some of them are like perfectly color-coded, even though they're a mix of like berries and flowers and trash. It's like the same exact tone of blue. And it was just fascinating. Early on, our first collection of work incorporated some like really bright, saturated colors. So also like when we were thinking up names, you're literally everything you look at, you're like, uh, spoon, uh, soap. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just like, can that be a name? And then, like, start combining names. So like, it was definitely in my mind looking for a name. Um, but it felt like a nice tie-in. And also the word Bauer, the bird's namesake is, it means home. And it's, it's named after the home that it constructs. So that also makes a lot of sense because we make home objects. So that's the story of the Bauer bird. Yeah. And is this a mating ritual? Sure is. <laughs> and, and is it the male or the female of the species that makes these elaborate designs? It's the male. Yeah, so this does line up perfectly. Um, <laughs> have you guys found your mates since you started making mirrors? <laughs> I, I found a mate. Okay. I'm still building my bower. Okay. <laughs> a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. 
ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Now that you guys have been in business for a while and you have collections, you have furniture, mirrors are your specialty, but you do seven-foot fountains and custom and collaborations. There's a DNA of the brand. There's a cohesiveness, but I love that you've also like not limited yourself to specific silos of product types. How would you describe some of those through lines? Like what would you how would you describe the DNA of the brand? Something we are naturally drawn to is just like very simple shapes and combinations of shapes. And I I think it's maybe something not only that we're attracted to, but we just feel like it's just like a human, like a natural people just are attracted to simple forms. So that's something in in just like kind of our aesthetic language that's pretty consistent that just naturally comes out. And then other than that, something we don't always do, but, you know, comes in into our work every once in a while is kind of throwing in an element of surprise, like kind of like a little little like hint of, of something that feels a little bit magical or unexpected. Early on, we worked with uh, like really high powered magnets. We use them for a few different products to create things that float 
there was a, a chandelier that looked like it was floating in space because it was being pulled up by by this magnetic force, and you just couldn't visually see what the hell was going on. Oh, cool. Um, and it was just like a hit. Like when you know when we were showing it in a few shows, people looked like children, <laughs> like playing with it and looking at it. So. I think that was kind of a really early on, like an amazing thing to see people's reaction to these like unexpected things and not underst- like not quite understanding how they worked. But the form, like from a from a distance or at first glance, feels familiar enough. You kind of like let down your guard, and, and it kind of, it's almost like a setup, and then you kind of hit them with some kind of little surprise. So I would say the marble melt chair is is like that too in that the totally marble is just for our listeners it's it's sort of stretched out like a sheet of taffy and then draped over a brass form in a way that's so unexpected for marble which is typically only in slabs and planar execution so it's got this weight but this fluidity to it like you can't take your eyes off it yeah that's that's a perfect example of of kind of the latest piece um, and actually collection um, which hasn't been released yet that melting marble um, just playing with kind of expectations of materials and and kind of twisting them around and having people be like how is that happening (laughs) there's an element of humor to it too i think there's definitely the surprise element but i think there's almost like a serious humor like our our most popular product is the archway mirror and it's like you know, a somewhat elegant, delicate, fragile, yet huge piece. But at the same time, you know, you can have a lot of fun with it and it can surprise you and and it can be kind of fun or funny. Like in some ways we've displayed it in the past where it's like an infinite hallway that is a little mesmerizing or something like that. It's a nice way to challenge assumptions and help people do a double take. And also when you don't take it too seriously yourself, that's infectious. Like, People who are drawn to it are reminded not to take things too seriously. It helps to brighten and lighten. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes you get yourself in way too deep and you have to learn on the fly and it's sort of horrible while it's happening, but can still end up in magnificent success. Or sometimes you get yourself into a project where, you know, there are happy accidents or unforeseen positive outcomes. Is, is there one in there that you feel like you really grew from? in terms of those challenges and or unexpected positives? There's a couple of good examples. Um, one that I, I haven't thought about in a while. I think I forced myself to forget when you said terrifying or horrible or whatever the word <laughs> was. <laughs> I remembered uh, Tamara was definitely there. I don't know if Jeffrey saw the worst of it, but when we did design this fountain, it was part of this collection for uh, collective design through Sight Unseen, actually. They, had, they were our representation um, so we were part of their booth there. And it was our first time being part of this kind of like gallery furniture world. So we, we really felt like we had to step it up and just like take it to the next level. So we decided to have this fountain that was running water and like pumping water through a cycle of chambers in this pristine, beautiful gallery space. And it might surprise you, but we don't we don't have experience working with like <laughs> hydrodynamics or whatever it's called. We worked it out, you know, in the studio, we brought it over. And then when we turned it on, the thing starts flowing up like higher and higher and higher. And it wasn't sucking the water out of the bottom chamber fast enough to keep all the levels equal. Yeah. It's hard to describe, but it was the essentially flow the flow rate 
was faster than the suck rate. If that, if that's <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's physics. That's, 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 right. that's our level of physics, but you know, we love a challenge. <laughs> and so, so it's, I think this show was about to open in like 10 minutes. Like there was a line out the building and it's literally overflowing and we're like getting towels. And I don't think we, we yeah, we had like moving blankets from that we had like unwrapped the other pieces from. And we're just like, I think what ended up happening is we unplugged it and Tamara like ran to the hardware store and bought like, some kind of plumber's putty and like MacGyvered it. And miraculously, like I usually don't believe in miracles, but that was a miracle that it <laughs> turned on and worked like a charm and no one saw the puddles. And we might, we must've looked like we had seen a ghost, but <laughs> it worked out in the end. But uh, <laughs> that was a scary day. What's, what's the takeaway? <laughs> Don't test your fountain <laughs> at the tree five show. minutes before the show. Opens. Yeah. <laughs> Very relatable takeaway for uh, yeah, everyone for sure. listening out there. Yeah. <laughs> I told you about the fountain. <laughs> I love that there's a voice of reason, but I also love when a MacGyver story has to happen. I mean, that's frequently part of it is you think you got everything dialed in and then you need to somehow come up with a modified on the fly solution and that's when you know your brain's really working. <laughs> Problem solving. How how would you say the relationship between the three of you and the studio in terms of the business and the work you're doing, how has it evolved over the years? And what direction is it evolving into? It's been a pretty organic process. It's sort of like a stream of consciousness where we're informed by our previous work, but inspired by new things. Like we, we definitely, after a few collections, have created a language that just feels like Bauer. And so it's pretty quick for us to recognize if something fits into our DNA or not. At this point, it comes pretty naturally to us. We don't really have to question it too much. That being said, we don't really like getting too comfortable with what we know. Like we could just keep cranking out like the same mirrors uh, and and probably be okay for a little while. Um, but it gets boring for us. It probably gets boring for our audience. Like I think that it's kind of a, a contagious spirit that like if you're having fun with it, if you're challenging yourself, um, I think it comes through in the products and the objects. So. Um, it's a great motivation to just keep pushing ourselves with fresh new ideas um, and still have it feel like it makes sense in, in our body of work. Would you characterize yourselves as just curious experimenters or lifelong learners? Is that why you want to, I mean, obviously keeping things fresh, there's, there's a lot of good sound logic for that, but it also can sometimes be hard, especially when you have a few hit products that could could easily keep the lights on for a while. I definitely think we have to, at the same time, keep in mind the the reality of running a growing business and and having employees and you know doing the best we can in, in terms of that. In terms of evolution, we've become more professional. We've become better at kind of navigating the industry. You know, we have to plan more, uh, which can be a little boring. But we we also have to keep space for that freedom. It's kind of what we talked about earlier that balancing act in our sweet spots. I think we are a pretty ambitious bunch, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. And we have, you know, crazy ideas and, and crazy goals that seem impossible. We probably wouldn't want to share them here just in case, but uh, you know, we, it's also a loose trajectory. I would say that we're 
kind of dreamers who are also good at executing. It just evolves and changes over time, but but it seems to be working. So we're continuing that. So I want to get into your creative process because I love to hear the dynamics of collaboration. I think it's fascinating um, across all different kinds of creative disciplines. So when the three of you get together to embark on a project, or maybe you land a client, or maybe there's an idea that one of you is pushing, what's the flow? Like, how do you work through the fuzzy phase where everything's just figments and fragments into focusing it into an idea and then developing like a recipe for execution? What does that look like between the three of you? Tamara and I, well, we thrive in the fuzzy phase. I think that's our favorite part (laughs) of the process because there's, uh, and, and we consistently don't hold back, even though we've shot ourselves in the foot a couple of times because of that. But you know, we, we honor the freedom of dreaming in the beginning. And over time, we've gotten smart about what's possible, what's not possible. So that's, that's kind of always in the backs of our minds. We always start off very open, and we try not to be too safe in the beginning. Even if, even if it feels like a pretty straightforward brief, we try to get the client, try to get their attention a little bit at first, like <laughs> surprise them with some stuff. Yeah, and then and then we can, we have a very open, democratic culture in the office in the studio. Everybody can look at what we're working on, can have a say. We throw out ideas that we're not even sure are good because someone else might hear something good in the ideas or see something in a sketch that's actually better than what was intended originally. So we have a very open kind of ideation process. And it's not until we something kind of like strikes us on on like both an emotional and like a sort of functional level that it, and it's pretty obvious when it does mm-hmm. that we we start kind of honing more into that direction and iterate and just kind of refine and execute. Do you feel kind of a palpable crescendo as this is happening when everybody's kind of aligning with the direction and you're feeling excited? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think what Danny said is, is right on. Like you, you just know it when it happens. I think the conversation gets more serious. Tamar definitely will always jump in. He, he always wants to like fix things and make things. So he's like, all right, so who are we calling first? And like, you know, when, when you get to that point, you kind of know you're on on the beginning of, of something there. I definitely jumped the gun. <laughs> oh, that's a cool idea. Let's do it. And then you wait for Jeffrey's reaction. <laughs> you look at his face. You're like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Some of our tails wag faster than others at first. <laughs> Who's the, the voice of reason? Who's the, um, the cautious one? I'm Jeffrey. not going to answer that. <laughs> Jeffrey, for sure. <laughs> if we didn't have that, uh, who knows? We'd yeah. be alive right now. Right. It's not a bad thing. It's a balancing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Plus it's two against one. So I have to kind of pull that, <laughs> pull that side of the board. I've read your, your statements and, you know, you've said that your pieces are a way to connect with your audience. And I mean, we already know that you're arranging things in order to attract a mate. But other than that, what are your intentions for that relationship with the audience? The way I was describing our general aesthetic, I think, keeps things really open in terms of like, there's no specific 
like historical or stylistic references. You know, you don't need to be an educated designer to appreciate our work. We try to keep things pretty simple and universal, but still sophisticated in the details and how they're crafted. So I think that allows for a, a larger audience, a more diverse audience to kind of understand and appreciate our work. There are opportunities which have happened now for a second time with West Elm specifically, where we have the opportunity to access a, a larger audience. We just finished a collaboration with them for the second time, like I said. And uh, that process was, we were out of our comfort zone because as a small high-end design studio, we're used to kind of having a vision and not not really having to worry about producing things at scale, like at large volumes. So it, in that way, there's more things that are sort of possible, but it's also more costly. And therefore your audience kind of gets smaller um, or people that can afford to buy your pieces. It's a great exercise working with a team like that. Like they're, they're such experts at what corners we can cut, what, what corners we can't, you know, they have a very specific target price and the, the deadlines are, are real. And <laughs> so we're, we're working with within constraints that we're not used to, but the great thing at the end of the day is, you know, the pieces are much more accessible. Like my friends can buy them and it just, it just opens up the exposure to uh, a lot more people. So it's, it's gratifying in that way. Yeah. That's exciting. And it also, it gives you enough of experience at that scale that you can, you know, your way around it. Tell me about the products that you collaborated with West Elmon. We designed some lighting and some furniture and accessories. And they have a few common themes that tie them together. Um, some like repeated uh, shapes and patterns. They definitely have the Bauer DNA within them. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a nice little range of products. I have to say that I appreciate when a company like West Elm collaborates with a studio like Bauer to help reach a larger audience. I think everybody wins in those situations. Hopefully, obviously, if it's a, if it's a productive collaboration, but that way more people get to experience your work, um, and know who you are. You get to connect with a larger audience and West Elm gets to, I would say, you know, there's some cachet to being a tastemaker and working with independent studios, but there's also a real ethics behind it as opposed to, just following trends, but actually wanting to support the people who are setting the trends by working together. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. We can't really have a conversation now without acknowledging the time that we're in. Global pandemic, obviously, which has made us all really reckon with, I think, ourselves, um, our systems, definitely our homes, because uh, we've been spending so much time in them. But we're also, you know, facing financial crisis and enormous systemic injustice that needs to be rectified. Hopefully, it's a time of growth and change, but there's a lot of turbulence in the moment. And I think a lot of people are cracking themselves open and kind of sorting through what to keep and what to jettison and crystallizing priorities. So I, I wonder if you guys would share with me 
a reflection on these times or on something you're thinking about for yourself or the world or the future? One thing that I find kind of beautiful about this time, even though it's, you know, it's hard to find beauty in, in so much disaster and pain, but the fact that so much of it is you can't ignore and we're all being affected by it. And I know this has been said a lot already, but it, it really is a, an amazing thing for everyone to feel like they're kind of in something together. And it feels like cultures are sort of dissolve away. We, it just feels like we're, we're this like human race that's going through something. <laughs> and of course there's a million problems with how we're going about it, but I think there is this sort of sense of unity that's really beautiful. And that I hope we, we kind of capture in the right ways and don't forget that it just don't go back to how things used to be and, and really like take something positive out of it. And yeah. And like reflecting more inwardly than, than we ever have. Like you, you know, before it felt like, you know, with all the systemic issues that are coming to the forefront, like everyone was sort of aware of, of it, but like, unless it's affecting your day to day or unless you're clearly doing something to wrong someone else, you kind of coast along. And it's like, you're it, it's sort of like you're living in this, in this like matrix and you know that there's all these invisible forces around you, but now everyone's kind of being forced to look at, their role within these structures and systems because everyone has one, whether you, you know it or not, whether you want to be part of it or not, you are. And so I think that's kind of a unique thing that everyone's having to confront within themselves and ask themselves what they're going to do about it. Sometimes it takes a lot of hard, painful truths to, to create something good. (laughs) So I'm being optimistic. (laughs) I love it. And, and I, I totally agree with that. I think bones have uh, been broken and healed poorly, and you have to break them and reset them in order for them to heal right. And hopefully they heal stronger than, than, be, than they were before. Yeah. Yeah. Less compromised. It's definitely an emotional feeling around all of it. And to go into depth um, with it would be a little difficult. But definitely goes beyond racial equality. I mean, the whole world is kind of effed, figuring out how to fix it, as everyone's saying, learning, learning, learning. And it's true, but that takes a lot of time. And trying to, like, fix it quickly through social, like, acting now, you, you got to obviously continue to do that. Agreed. I, f- I feel like kind of what Danny was alluding to is this moment of, uniting on our and deciding that we're all going to evolve and we have to be on board with that. And, and what you're saying is, is it's not going to happen. Well, it does. It happens in many small actions, but those actions have to be consistent and aligned with your intentions over time in order for that change to really take hold and get momentum and traction and grow. And it is amazing to see how quickly some things have changed just from people showing up in the streets. Like that's, that's new to me. I didn't know that that could happen before, you know, three months ago. Things that usually would, would take years and years to change have been taking weeks. So it can work. Yes. Yes. Everything moves faster, hopefully. Yeah, I just hope we don't have too much whiplash, like the pendulum swinging too violently back and forth. I guess I would just say for for me personally, I think 
the situation, whether it's the pandemic or the push for racial equality or the economy or any of that, it's all kind of come together. At least it seems like all at once, even though a lot of it's been going on, you know, for a long time. For me, it's just kind of forced me to think about my life a little more simply and a little more slowly about kind of what matters most to me. And um, I think it may have something to do with the fact that my wife and I just had our first child, but taking a step back and, and just thinking about family and friends and the general community that we live in and health and happiness and these basic things. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like when they're at the top of the priority list, it, it helps to bring out an empathy and equality and inclusion um, into society. And I, I hope that this crazy period kind of brings us that way instead of the whiplash that you kind of mentioned. I hope for that too. I think it's possible. I agree with you. I think a lot of people are thinking about their life in, in those terms. I know for me, community has emerged as an absolute priority. And it wasn't before, because I, I guess I always thought it would just happen. And now I, I realize I, I have to invest wholeheartedly in the community that I want to be a part of. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us are still learning what that means or, or how to invest in a community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe this is the beginning of that for some people, but you know, if you put your heart into it and, and you spend some time thinking through it, everybody will be better off a, a few months from now or a few years from now. Before I let you go, and thank you so much for sharing your story and your studio and, and those really powerful words with us. I, I always do like to give our listeners something to look for in terms of a project um, or something that's in the pipeline. I know you mentioned West Elm. So do you have a launch? Yeah, it is launching in early August the 3rd. So look out for it. And we also, we have um, our own collection as well, which is an expansion of that melt chair that we talked about earlier, the melting marble chair. We now have full collection based on that, that launches in the fall. Thank you so much. I really liked hearing about the how you all met, your, the dynamic that you've formed, where you're going with your work, how the collaborations come together. Thanks for listening. Remember to go to cleverpodcast.com slash reflection dash contest for all the details and to enter the contest. To see images of Bauer's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help a lot. We also love when you reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.